0: This month, I turned 50, and I think I've finally figured out what I want to be if I grow up. How about you? This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford.
1: And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob Beach. I'm Rachel. This is Ed March.
0: This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Cope. Hello, here's Herbert Schwarz.
1: I'm Brett Tax. This is Zoe Cano. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham
0: Hoskins. This is Joe Rust. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workler. This is Ted
1: Simon. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
0: This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And MotorTour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motor Tour: Ride, Share, Connect. That's www.motortour.com. And Best Rest products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to go right in your saddle bag. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves. So, they know what we need when we're exploring the world. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. On today's episode of Adventure Rider Radio, we're going to speak with one of my heroes, Lois Price from the UK. Lois is, of course, an adventure rider. She's a world traveler. She's an author, speaker, and she's one of the curators of the Adventure Travel Film Fest, which is a a festival that goes on in the UK and Australia. And also, what you can hear on this episode is that Lois, unlike me, knows what she wants to be when she grows up. I'm speaking with Lois Price, who is an author, a journalist, and a broadcaster. She's also the co-founder of the Adventure Travel Film Festival, and you probably know her from her book, Lois on the Loose. Lois, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi. Hi. You know, it's so great to have you here because I got to tell you, I've had a bunch of people email and say, "Where's Lois? <laughs> Why is Lois Price not on here?" And I've been saying we've been trying to get her, but she's so darn busy riding this damn motorcycle all the time. That we can't <laughs> know, seem to everyone. get her. Stop it.
1: It's been very difficult to track me down. I've been all over the place actually in the last year or so. So yeah, but here we are at last. So I'm very happy to be here. Well,
0: I want to talk about your your adventures, but I mean, I first like to start at the beginning and and talk about motorcycling. I know that um, sort of you had a, a, a sort of a big change, I guess, in 2003, where you left your job at BBC and you headed off on a motorcycle adventure. But just before that, what brought you up to riding a motorcycle?
1: Well. It was funny because I've got no history of motorcycling in in my family or, you know, a few of my friends might have ridden bikes over the years, but but I've never been surrounded by bikes or or ridden when I was a kid or anything. I just always thought it looked like a cool, fun thing to do. And, you know, I was was kind of always into kind of rock and roll and all the rest of it and motorcycles, motorcycles a pretty rock and roll so i thought well, that seems like the sensible thing to do uh i loved um old british bikes i always did uh old 50s and 60s you know bsa's Triumphs, snorkings that kind of thing so that's actually how i started out with riding those kind of bikes uh but it was when i p- passed my test uh and I was in my late 20s at like 27 28 i think that as soon as i passed my test i realized oh actually what i really want to do with the bike is travel i'd always wanted to travel i wasn't really ever sure how to do that or what I really wanted to do I just knew that I had you know the wanderlust the itchy feet but as soon as the bike license came along it was like bam light bulb moment right this is what you do.
0: So here you are working at BBC you know that could be considered by most people to be just an amazing job you're you're on your way up the corporate ladder how could you throw it all away?
1: (laughs) Well you know I think a lot of jobs they sound better than they actually are And that was one of them. I mean, of course, it's a great job to have. And, and, you know, it served me well, having worked at the BBC. It's a very useful place to be And I met lots of great people. And and I did do lots of interesting work. I was working for their music department, putting together um, CDs and compilations of of music from radio shows and TV series and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was was a good job to have. No complaints. But I just realised very early on that that sort of corporate world wasn't really for me I came from a background of kind of independent record companies and record shops that kind of stuff so um I wasn't it, it just wasn't really my um, sort of environment uh, so I stuck it out for a few years but I realized that you know I've worked since I left school and I'm heading in towards 30 and I thought well I have to do something else I can't just sit in this air-conditioned office you know staring out the window for the rest of my life and that coincided with the um with passing my motorcycle test, and then that was it, really. I was off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> In my mind, you're you're an ultimate adventure, because you get out there and you do these things. Uh, you go to places that really, most people would just shake their head and say, you shouldn't do that. Have you always been like this? Like, I mean, was Lois as a kid this type of kid that was always running off, doing crazy things, <laughs> pushing the limits?
1: Um, I'm trying to think, you know, I've I, I wondered about that, because... I wasn't, I'm not like a daredevil adrenaline sort of person. You know, I don't kind of I have the need to do bungee jumping or sort of with life and limits. It's more just an exploration urge uh, and uh, just you know, heck, see what happens kind of urge. Uh, rather than oh, I want to be scared. I don't enjoy being scared, so it's not about that. It's not. I think it's a different sort of thrill to say people that I don't know do motocross or or, or kind of jump, you know, base jumping that kind of thing. So it's more just uh, wandering around in the world, not really worrying about what's going to happen and just seeing what does happen. And, that, and I think that was it. Always, I think I've always had that element. So uh, yeah, my parents are pretty easygoing and, and kind of out, you know, we were, had quite an outdoorsy sort of childhood, you know, camping and um, getting dirty and climbing trees. And, you know, so there was no ever, you know, my mum and dad never ever said, ever said to me, uh, that's uh, scary, or don't do that. It's dangerous, or so we. I suppose grew up with that kind of approach.
0: Yeah, because you, you say you, you don't really like being scared. But I mean, for a woman to go off by herself and say, I'm going to ride from Alaska to the tip of South America by herself. I'm, I, don't, I don't know, as a man, I'm going to find that scary. And I hate to sound sexist, and I don't mean to. But I mean, I think it's a lot bigger risk for a woman, or it takes a lot more in today's society, even though things have changed, to go off and do that. So you may not want to be scared, but you don't mind being out there, um, maybe where it's, nothing's predictable.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's true. Um, In fact, that really was part of the appeal, actually, because before um, I did leave for that first trip, um, one of the things that were kind of getting me down, there was nothing to complain about. I had a perfectly fun life going on in London and a good job and all the rest of it. But it was just the predictability and the fact that I sort of knew what was going to happen all the time. And and, and what appealed to me was the idea of, of being on the road of not knowing what would happen each day and not knowing when you wake up in the morning, not knowing where you're going to sleep that night. And I I, I like that sort of thrill. Uh, so that was part of the uh, appeal. And also just the kind of sense of, um, you know, that uh, things were sort of a, a little bit too easy um, in normal life in London. And I, I like the idea of just sort of throwing myself out into the world and seeing what would happen and, and sort of having to make it up as I went along, which is not something that you have to do. Most of the time in life.
0: In two thousand three, you you quit that job. You went out on your first trip. Why the Americas? Because it seems formidable, somewhat, for you being in the UK. Um, there'd be something in Europe that could be much easier. So why would you decide to come across here?
1: Well, what I wanted to do in the, I always have the grand plan. You know, it's a, it's too ambitious probably. But you know, obviously, it's like right, I want to ride a motorbike around the world. Uh, and then I realised I probably didn't have enough money to do that, and it would take me too long to sort of save up. So I looked at the map, and I thought, well, let's try and aim for something a little bit more uh, realistic. So half the world would have to do, and I, and I am a sun and heat loving Brit, so I didn't want to go to anywhere, in the, you know, like Russia. I didn't want to ride that long route across Russia. It looked too cold and boring uh and i'm an american ophile is that what you call it an america ophile um yeah I, i'm a you know it's not very fashionable or popular to be one of those but um everything that i am into and i love kind of music and fashion and, and design and architecture everything is america i love it So i'm a huge record collector and i play in a band and all the music that i love is you know american so i, I the idea of going down the west coast and california and seeing all these places that are from song titles. And, you know, that was like my dream. Uh, So I thought, well, I'll incorporate America in it and then I'll I'll just keep going. So why not start at the top and go down the bottom? And so that was the thinking. And also geographically, it would be much more, it's always much more interesting to travel north to south or south to north, but to travel that direction than to travel east, west, west, east, because you're always at the same latitude if you do that. And so the scenery doesn't change. While as if you travel north south around the world you get an incredible diverse range of landscapes and terrain and weather and everything so you get you know, incredible mountains and snow up in Alaska and then you get the deserts and you get um, jungle in this equatorial area and, and, and then it all mirrors itself as you go into the southern hemisphere so it's a really interesting varied uh, ride to do and then from a practical um, point of view south and central America you've got one language unless you go into brazil but i didn't on that occasion but you can, you can do most of it on, on spanish speaking so there's only one language to learn which is good for me because I'm, I'm not you know i'm english so not really good at learning languages and um and from a bureaucracy point of view you can get your visas if you're british you can turn up at the border and get your visas on the borders and they're cheap and you don't need to plan them all in advance like you do say if you go through africa and you don't need a carne for the bike which is a huge amount of money either so so it's actually I think a really good first trip for people to do because you still get a sense of adventure and going somewhere exotic and exciting and, 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 and foreign and different, but without the real hardships that you get in Africa, say, for example. That's
0: an excellent point you make about going north to south and, and changing your latitude, um, rather than uh, staying at one single thing, because mm. yeah, the, the diverse landscape you would see is incredible. Didn't people tell you that you shouldn't do this?
1: Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> and they especially told me that I shouldn't do it on a little 225cc bike, mm-hmm. which was, you know, very unusual in those days. A lot more people are traveling on small bikes now. But then the, the, the kind of perceived wisdom was that, that if you want in a big adventure, you've got to have a big bike. And so I sort of believed that to start when I was looking at these BMWs and, and, and um, Trans Alps and all that kind of thing, 600, 650s but they were so big and heavy. And I, you know, I wasn't that experienced. I'd been riding around for a year on my old British bikes, which had given me a lot of experience in breakdowns and pushing and kicking and crying and swearing and stuff like that, but hadn't really given me much experience in sort of, you know, sort of serious adventure riding on, on, you know, a heavy bike on a difficult terrain or anything like that. So I'd started to do a little bit of off-road riding uh, on my 225 and I just thought, Practically speaking, I'm I'm quite sure, I'm five foot four. I wanted to be able to touch the ground. I'm going to be traveling on my own. I've got to be able to pick this thing up. There's no way I could pick up a giant, big beast of a bike, all fully loaded. So I, I just thought the bike has to be a friend to me, not a foe. I don't want to wake up in the morning and be intimidated, intimidated by, by my bike. I just want something that's like nippy and small and I could throw it around, pick it up, smash it up, don't worry about it. And, and just keep going. And, and, and it's simple and can be fixed anywhere in the world. And, and that, that bike, the sero, fitted that, that description really
0: The Yamaha XT225 is um, a pretty small bike, at least uh, Mm -hmm. if you're an average size male. Anyway, it feels like a pretty small bike. However, it's a fantastic bike to ride. It's got a really low first gear, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, you can get up any hill. Yeah, it's (laughs) very, it's just a
0: a little tractor. But how how did you find that riding the highways, especially when you're going, you know, coming down from Alaska?
1: Yeah, well, it, it, the only time that, I, I mean, the good thing about riding a small bike is it forces you to take the small roads, which, of course, is where all the fun is to be had anyway. I was going to L.A. to visit some friends, and, and you can't really avoid freeways in L.A., you know, unless you know the surface streets, which, of course, I didn't because I'd never been there before. So I had to take, you know, I, I had this dreamy ride down the west the, the coastal road, you know, Highway 1 or whatever, it is, into Malibu, and I was just like, this is living the dream, you know, singing Beach Boys songs, and it's just like, this is amazing, it's Farm trees and then I hit the kind of reality of LA freeway then it was a bit mad and people just looking at me like I was crazy and shouting you know at me and telling me to get off the robot what they're doing on a farm bike and all of this kind of thing <laughs> uh, but then I just have to keep going so I just like sat in the slow lane and plodded away and and followed the, you know the direction until I got to my friend's house so yeah that wasn't the most fun but really once you know that wasn't my main idea was to ride to ride big freeways. And once you get into Mexico, Central, South America, then you're on all these like crazy little roads and you can just, it's brilliant because you can just look at a track and think, oh, I'll go and investigate that or go to a beach and think, oh, I'll just go and ride down to the beach and not be worried about the bike falling over or getting trapped underneath it or uh, you know breaking your leg because it's so heavy or anything like that so it's actually quite liberating and once you get into these kind of more sketchy countries you don't really want to be going fast because you don't know what's coming out around the next corner there's all sorts of crazy stuff you know kids and donkeys and dogs and potholes and roadblocks and, road and yeah you know, all sorts of crazy stuff so actually just pootling along at 55 miles an hour is just fine
0: When you came through uh, Canada and and down through the States, were you camping or are you hoteling it?
1: No, I didn't hotel it really. I camped uh, in all that section. I've got friends in, well, family friends in Vancouver that I stayed with. um, And then uh, a couple of friends in California. And, and Oregon actually and you know it's kind of thing that I'm sure that other people you've interviewed have said this once you start traveling people start putting you in touch with their friends and then you stay with them and then they put the, you on to someone else and of course as you will know the motorcycling fraternity or I mean there's just amazing camaraderie which I've never seen anywhere else you know I don't think you get that if you're traveling by bicycle or Land Rover or on buses or whatever but you know that you can you know be taken in by a complete stranger who's a motorcyclist and they'll look out for you and help you out and you'll always wave each other and stop and share notes and 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 there's just and that is the case all over the world and it's just really heartwarming so it's lovely to feel although I was on my own I sort of felt part of something bigger than me
0: That's interesting because when you started out on this, you didn't have any motorcycling history. It wasn't like anyone would recognize your name. You were just somebody out doing her first ride and you Mm. already found that. It was an open community at that point.
1: Oh, yeah. It was immense. Amazing. I I mean, obviously, I was, uh, you know, kind of, in the early sort of days of sort of writing about stuff online, I suppose in those days. So, but but it was very basic. But that did help, obviously, because I connected with people through Horizons Unlimited, which is was brilliant and and continues to be brilliant for that kind of thing. But I would be writing emails and emailing them back home. And my brother, he's a bit of a wizard, you know, techie wizard, and he wanted to try making a website. So he said he would do that as a kind of project, and I'd send these emails, and I'd get my photos like actually developed, I had a film camera. I'm a bit of a later doctor. I'm sure that people had digital cameras in those days, but I was still using a Nick like a Nikon a FM2 film camera and getting them actually developed in print, like even in places like Costa Rica or whatever, and then posting them back to my brother who would then scan them in <laughs> and put them on this kind of little homemade website so it was pretty old school now compared to what you can do now you know uploading on the spot and all of that sort of stuff but um yeah it worked and people were reading it about it and contacting me and I was getting messages from people in Kuala Lumpur telling me if I was ever there then they would put me you know just amazing uh so yeah it was really really heartwarming experience
0: what about safety? Is, is travelling as a woman on your own, on a motorcycle, I mean, there, there's a lot of things at risk there. How did you handle the safety aspect of it?
1: Well, this is the thing, obviously, that concerns you before you leave. You know, people always ask me, was I scared? And, and the reality is, yeah, I was really scared before I left. I mean, God, I was lying awake at night, thrashing about in bed, worrying about everything, you know. All the awful things that could possibly happen to me and all the awful things that everyone told me would happen to me.
0: That's really good because a lot of people who are listening will think, oh, yes, she is human. <laughs> she, she's normal. She's like me because anybody should be scared with that.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely was scared, but I, I was much more scared before I left. And, and it was once I got going, I realized there's actually very little to be scared of. And uh, so people are very friendly and welcoming. And I started off in the States where people are very open, very hospitable. And really, I I just found that all the way. I mean, obviously there's a few sketchy moments, uh, maybe, uh, you know, south of the border occasionally, and certainly had some sketchy moments for, in Africa uh, on my second trip. But mostly people are curious, so they want to know about you, and they're just all over you, like from that point of view. And sometimes that can feel intimidating, especially somewhere you know, where they all crowd around you and they're touching you and they're grabbing you. But that's just because that's how they react to each other that and we're not used to that we're not used to strangers touching you so it feels odd but once you realize that they don't mean any harm by it it's fine um so i, I used to worry about where am i going to find somewhere to stay and oh what will happen this? but you get a very uh, highly sort of tuned highly honed um instinct about whether somebody's suspect or not or whether something's safe or not so you might go into a hotel and and, and the guy on the desk is a bit weird and you just think no nah, i don't really like this style, like, I don't really like this place. You don't really know why, but, you, but it, it's like a muscle, you know, gets trained and you have to believe in it and then you're fine. And, and it's almost, it's always right, actually. I think your instinct's always right and it does get up to speed pretty quickly.
0: So if you go into a hotel and you don't like the, the look of it or something about you gives you a bad feeling, what do you do? You just say to them, no, nah, I'm going to move on?
1: Yeah, I just say, oh, it's like, I, I think I'll just ride for a bit longer or I'll just go and check it out and come back, or you know, make up some excuse. But sometimes you'll get some, a strange offering to put you up. Like, for example, this guy in the Yukon uh, saw me and he said, oh, do you want to come and stay in my trailer? Uh, like, yeah, you know, some sketchy guy on a, on a motorbike. And I thought, you yeah, that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? <laughs> if, I told, <laughs> if I told my mum that's what happened, she'd be like, really? Um, so, but, and then he said to me, I've got a wife. Okay, well, that's a good line, isn't it? But yeah, it's not something you would recommend, you know, go back to some guy's trailer that you just met in the middle of the Yukon. But I did because I just thought, you know, this is what I've come to do meet people, talk to people. He was a half uh, American Indian truck driver, I thought it'd be interesting. And uh, we had a great time. And he did have a wife, and they fed me, and what you know, I had a bath, and we got drunk, and and it was brilliant. It was really fun, but but but, there were that, other times.
0: but what you just described to me immediately sets off my bells and whistles and says, <laughs> "Okay, no, 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 don't do that." So you, that doesn't really go with what you just instructed <laughs> me with.
1: Oh well, I know, but there was something that's what I mean. You just know by talking to somebody, you can tell if they're going to be okay or not. I really think you can, um, and I've had other times that people have said, "Oh, come, you know, come back to our, our place and my place." And you think, no, well, there's no way that I'm going anywhere with you. And you just make an excuse and off you go. But you just, it is all down to instinct. And I know that sounds a bit sort of woolly, but really that's all you've got. Uh, because the other, the other option is either to, it's just to to say no to everything and to just hide away. And then, you know, because these trips aren't really about the riding or the great scenery or the sunset. They're about the people that you meet. and the, And that's how you learn about places and, and, and they're the funny stories that happen. It's all about the people. So, um, that and certainly, you know, I found that I say in Iran, where I've been recently. I mean, just the most incredible experiences of just you know meeting Iranian people and hanging out with them and staying with them. And and, and without that, you know, you would have a very well, you'd have a much poorer experience in the country.
0: Do you find that it gets easier as you go? When you started on this trip, I mean, you, you might have had a, a certain level of, of accepting people and accepting invitations. And do you find that as you've went, it's become much easier?
1: Yeah, uh, I think it, I think it becomes easier in that you sort of know what to expect from the kind of day to day sort of routine of being on the road, and obviously you get more familiar with your bike and 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 you know the, the, any sort of boring sort of paperworky stuff like visas and all that sort of thing. So from that point of view, yeah, it gets easier, um, and like I say, you kind of your instinct gets kind of honed, and you know you know what to do. But then in a sense, there's a slight sadness about that because you never recreate that first trip feeling and, and it's so so exciting when you don't know what the hell is going on and you don't I, I, you'll never that naivety actually kind of sees you through a lot because everything is new and fun and novel and exciting and crazy and you don't really know what you're doing and it's just amazing and and that only happens to you once in your life
0: we've spoke about that on this show before about uh being naive and, and how ignorance can sometimes add to a I trip <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: did, did you find that with planning do you find that sometimes if you're over planning it takes away from the trip
1: yeah you see i'm quite like a listicker in a way I'm, I'm quite a planner and an organizer and everything by nature so i have to fight that side of me actually to have um to have a sort of proper adventure because it's the tempting is to just try and organize everything the whole time and of course that's where that's no fun really so you have to go with the flow and i would say it takes me about two weeks um in a long journey to to just let it go to stop worrying about right i've got to be clean and i've got to be tidy and organized and i've got to make this place and i've got to get there by a certain time and i want to see this and i want to do that once i've got all that nonsense done and out of my system then I actually get on with having a proper adventure and just and then I let the trip happen to me and that's much much better but it's it's a battle every time
0: (laughs) well it's interesting you're saying about that a proper adventure and you're sort of alluding to the fact that you picture an adventure having some unpredictability I'd like to ask you how do you define adventure and we've asked this many times to many different people because it's so interesting and and is adversity required and is time required
1: I think, I don't, I don't know if time is actually required, really. I think um, adversity probably, and so I just think uncertainty. You just have to not know what's going to happen. And I think it's good to start with a start point and an end point and then leave the rest of it up to chance uh, and be open to weird stuff happening to you. So I think uncertainty is the key thing. Uncertainty and, and, and probably adversity, yeah.
0: And you don't think any particular time is required a day, a week, a year?
1: I think you could have an adventure in a day if you had the right attitude and threw yourself into something. Uh, Yeah. So uh, from a a point of view of if you're talking specifically a motorcycle adventure, I think it's good to leave it open ended if you can. But most people can't do that. But... uh, so if you say oh i've only got two weeks well you could still have some kind of adventure in two weeks but if you are trying to work to well i've got to get the ferry back home or i've got to get my bike back then that's going to slightly it's going to affect how you feel about it it is an amazing feeling to to think well i don't have to be anywhere at a certain time ever you know that is incredible and that doesn't happen to us very often in our kind of busy first world lives so if you can live like that for a year then that is a real treat
0: do you not think that it's the look back? It's the retrospect that decides whether it was an adventure or whether it was a catastrophe. It's after the trip is all said and done. It's not in the moment when you're stressing over the flat tire or the situation you're in, whatever it may be. It's afterwards when you look back and you assess it, you know, from standing way back, <laughs> disconnected from what really happened, at least somewhat, that you actually decide was this adventure or was it catastrophe?
1: I think so. And probably, I think it's probably true for most of us that if you read our diaries of the days that we like to think of were adventurous and exciting, they're probably full of anguish and misery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly.
1: Uh, so I think it's true that when things go wrong, that's where the adventure starts. And that if things do go completely smooth, then you're probably not really having an adventure. But it is actually hard to remind yourself of that at the time, you know, when you've crashed in the middle of nowhere or you're totally lost in the desert without any water or you're being chased by some bandits with guns or something, you know, but of course those are the stories that you, you'll tell when you get home and they're, they're the stories you'll write up for your book or your magazine article or, you know, uh, and so that those that's your adventure really, but it, you know, at the time it's either scary or worrying or tedious or, you know, <laughs> so it's always this kind of the dichotomy of wanting things to all go to plan and making sure that your bike's prepped and you've got everything you need and everything's in order, and uh, but also sort of secretly wanting for something mad crazy to happen because that's when it gets interesting. So it's, it's, that's a tricky one. I've never really quite worked that out myself.
0: It's like the other day when I had a flat tire and found a, I'd taken out the one wrench, of course, for my axle nut, and uh, then my slime didn't seal the tire, what? and I was pulling over every I think four kilometers to refill the tire, and I had to remind myself this is an adventure.
1: Exactly, exactly. But it is hard to, it's hard to think that. And, and But it's easy to think that if you don't have to be anywhere and you're not just on your, your two-week vacation from work and, you know, if you really have got all the time in the world, then you can just let those things wash over you and, and, of course, that is when someone turns up and says, hey, you know, I'll help you out, come back and stay with me and come to this party and meet my family and, you know, and then you're off, you know, you're off on a whole new tangent of your trip that you never expected. And that's really what it's all about.
0: So 4 p.m. in the afternoon, you know, maybe it's starting to get a little bit late. You don't really have a place to stay. You, you don't have a campsite set out. Don't you feel that pressure of having to find something? And, and when you do, how do you deal with it?
1: I do, yeah. I mean, I always am aware of that. And that was the thing that worried me the most before I left. And even when I was on the road, where am I going to stay? Where am I going to stay? So obviously, I'd always carry my camping equipment. Uh, because if you've got that then you really you're never truly truly stuck um and sometimes I would kind of go out into the bush I did that a bit occasionally uh but actually I in a way I prefer to be up front with people and places and and go and say can I sleep here can I put my tent up here rather than sort of try to hide and because normally what you find is that someone will say oh yeah sleep in the garden or um or in Africa you know go into a little village and and I'd find the you know literally find the village chief and he would come out and give me permission to, to camp in his uh, kind of compound or something and and then people would come out and watch me put my tent up and talk to me and give me food and you know so those so i would rather do that in a way than sort of try and be secretive about it but sometimes you do have to do that because you do get unwanted attention sometimes you put a tent up in the middle of nowhere but um on on the whole, you know, I never ever truly found myself absolutely stuck. I mean, I have had to put, like pitch the tent by the side of the road a couple of times, but but on the whole, I'd always find either you know a, a nice place to put the tent or a little hotel room or someone would invite me in. So that tends to happen quite a lot.
0: In those first few weeks when you had maybe had a spot where you had to camp on the side of the road, was your was your diary entry rather depressing that evening?
1: <laughs> well, When I I first started out, I was in Alaska, and I think I stayed in... Well, actually, it was pretty remote camp. I mean, there was no one in the campsites because it was all snowy. It was a bit early in the season. So I did get a bit scared then because there were bears around, and I was convinced that they were going to eat me or, you know, and all this kind of thing. So, yeah, I probably would have written some quite comical entries then. (laughs) (laughs) What
0: was South America like for you on your first trip?
1: Oh, well, I loved it. It was... To me, most you know people say, "Oh, what was the best moment of that trip?" And crossing from the US into um, uh, Mexico at Tijuana, I went down Baja. That was just so exciting because America had been fun, but obviously it's easy. It's like the easiest country in the world to have a road trip in, and it's fun. But it's not English speaking; get everything you want. You know, uh, hotels with hot water and all the rest of it. And so I had a great time there. But when I crossed that border, everything was different. The language, different people looked different. The food was different. I didn't know what was going on. The money's different. Everything. I thought this is it. This is what I'd come for. This is what it's all about. And I just had this huge rush of excitement of like, oh, here we go. You know, that's how it felt. And and mm. I just I loved it, and Baja remains one of my favorite places, possibly my favorite place in our world. And I think it's not just, I love desert, and it's not just because I love desert, and it's because I think it signifies something for me that was just 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 so exciting.
0: Aside from travel, music is a big thing in your life. As you're going along, are you looking for? And you'd mentioned already that you were looking for those places, so you were looking for some of that. Were you looking for that music culture? Is that something that, that drew you into towns and cities?
1: Yeah, in, in the states particularly, and I've done another trip where I rode uh, when me and my husband Austin, we rode a sidecar outfit and a, a Ural um, Russian sidecar outfit uh, across the country from Richmond, Virginia to Seattle, and I did I brought my banjo with me and I in in the sidecar and I went around and played a lot and met people and, and watched loads of amazing music. So that is my dream, and I'd love to do more of that. I love seeing music anywhere in you know in um, on the road. it's, it's, it's great. So, yeah, yeah, That's. I'd like to do more kind of music-related travelling, actually.
0: You made it to uh, the tip of South America, to Ushuaia, mm-hmm. um, and everything was fine?
1: Yeah, it was fine. I mean, I, that was a brilliant trip. I had, you know, a few, there was some pretty heavy stuff on the way. I met up with this girl for a while who rode with me, came over from England, and she had an almost fatal crash and we literally had to scrape her off the side of the road of, in Bolivia and get her to the hospital, and, yeah, yeah her, her face was completely destroyed and fractured skull and everything. So that was really, really shocking and, and quite traumatic. But yeah. even as a as a witness to that sort of thing, because it really makes you think about what you're doing. And and I was really wobbly after she went back home, obviously, but, and then I set off again, and a lot of people were saying to me, back home, oh you know why don't you call it a day now and you know you've had a lucky run and just you know this is pretty serious. But I was so committed to going down to to Ushuaia that I just thought no, I have to do it but I was a bit wobbly for a few days after that you know. Uh, Because you're just aware that that could be me any day, any time. But then this is something that you have to live with as a motorcyclist every time you get on your bike. And if you think like that then you would never get on your bike. So kind of how do you deal with that thought you have to be sort of reckless but not too reckless and you know, it's it's difficult. So so there was a lot of that that was um quite hard. That was um in Bolivia. But uh, yeah, I continued on down to Australia, and yeah, it was great. The bike was pretty knackered by the time I got there it was using a litre of oil a day. <laughs> only oh, holding wow. a litre, so it's like having a daily oil change, very <laughs> expensive business. Um white smoke billowing, oil pouring out everywhere. Uh so <laughs> that was fun. Um Did this, you bring that from the UK? Yes, yeah, Lived oh. it back to Buenos Aires and then sent it back home in a boat, and then it got stolen as soon as it got back to London. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a bit sad. Um, and,
0: and and that's adventure, but it serves them right. The person who stole that bike. It,
1: well, no, but I'd have just had the engine rebuilt. Oh. I got, yeah, I got it. I rebuilt the engine. Not me. I got someone to rebuild the engine, and then uh, it got stolen. <laughs> oh. I know. So that's sad. Um. But yes, I got home ever and said, you know, uh, your ass must be killing you. Uh, You'll never sit on a motorbike again. And I said, actually, I'm going to go somewhere else. (laughs) So three years later, I rode from London to Cape Town. But I wrote a book in the meantime.
0: But but you did that on a much larger bike, uh, and we'll talk about that in in a minute. (laughs) <laughs> you went up 25cc. <laughs> yeah. um, but you wrote Lois on the Loose, a fantastic yeah. book, very well received. You didn't leave to write that book. That was not your plan no, when you left.
1: that's the funny thing. And you know, the best thing, that, the best thing that's come out of this whole thing, because obviously I went off to thinking, hey, I just want to have a motorcycle adventure and see the world. But I got a whole new career out of it. And I found, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? I discovered what it was. And that was like a kind of byproduct of the whole bike trip, which was brilliant. So I love writing. I mean, I always loved writing as a, you know, at school and as a kid, and but it never kind of occurred to me that I could actually do it for you know a job and have books published all around the world and all this kind of thing. So I started out, like I said, writing these emails back to my family and friends and my brother would put them on the website. And my friend was reading them and she had written a book, nothing to do with travel or anything, but she had an agent in New York and she said, oh, I think she'd like this. So she put me in touch with her. She read what I'd written up to that point, which was in California. And um, she said, "Yeah, I like this. You know, do the rest of the trip, and when you get back to England, we'll sort of work on putting a book proposal together." So I did that, and she hawked it around New York publishers, and it got rejected, you know, twenty times or whatever. And then, <laughs> uh, but remember, Harry Potter did as well for so that, was what kept me going. <laughs> and <laughs> so, um, and then, amazingly, she got me a publisher in in America, and then uh, one in England, and then it got translated into German and uh, Dutch and Italian and and yeah and so that was really the most exciting thing of all and and I loved I loved writing the book and 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 even on the road I loved writing as I was going and actually when I got home it was one of the things that I was most sad about not that the trip was over but that I wouldn't really have anything to write about anymore so it was really great to put it all down into a book and and that that really totally changed my life
0: I often wonder when I talk with people like you who have achieved so many things and, y- and you seem to just keep going and doing more. It seems like the more you've done, the more you, you do. Does it get easier? I mean, I know writing a book is easy and anybody can do it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just these obstacles are huge. If anyone's ever tried to even sit down and write an article, you yeah. realize just how formidable that task is.
1: Oh, my God, yeah. The book, writing a book is so much harder than doing any of those bunches. <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah, it's really, it's, you've got to be willing to sit on your own with your own thoughts and all of that fear of rejection and will it be rubbish and, you know, so you have to have this sort of, some sort of self-belief and uh, and then you've got to try and persuade the rest of the world that, you're, you know, that it's worth spending their hard-earned cash on and do, investing that time. It's not like a film, I mean, a film's actually, you know, harder to make in a different way, but it's, you're only asking someone to invest, you know, an hour and 90 minutes in into it but a book is a you know, commitment and and to read so you've got you know and I take it really really seriously the writing and I love writing and you, you, you learn how to write a book I suppose and and I suppose in that sense my second book was I wrote it quicker but um, I'm writing my third book at the moment and it's all still you know it's all there the same kind of self-doubt and the worry and the and the is it any good and the, you know and all writers suffer with that I think
0: but but do all of these things get easier as you go i mean even even planning the trips because we're going to talk in a few minutes about some other trips you've done that are even far more out there than what this one was yeah, even as yeah. a first timer
1: yeah the first trip was it uh, i think yeah the trips get easier definitely because you just know what what to expect and and i think um, it's easier now kind of to plan a trip than it ever was although i actually personally i mean i'm a bit like i was saying i'm a bit of a uh, lo-fi you know late adopter type I, I don't use a GPS or anything like that so I quite enjoy maps and, and that sort of thing but if you are a, a, um, a sort of um, techie person you've got all of this amazing stuff GPSs and you know Satnavs and google earth and, and and all these ways of communicating with people around the world and couch surfing and yeah you know, like loads of stuff that kind of come a, about I remember you know you when you probably when you interviewed Austin he probably mentioned that you know, they had to communicate with each other, him and the guys on the road. They'd write on in chalk on the road, we turned right, you know, it, when they lost each other. There's no cell phones. I mean, I didn't have cell phones on my chips either. So, um, and I, I quite like that lo-fi. I like to get away from technology. I like to travel really, really light. I like to have hardly anything. Uh, and, and for me, that's part of the appeal of actually being on the road is kind of getting away from all of the nonsense of modern life, I suppose. So that gets easier. Writing books doesn't though.
0: <laughs> the writing books is still just as hard as the first yeah, one. Yeah, but
1: it's a joy. I, I love it. It's like a rush. It's a real thrill. When it's going well, it's like being on drugs or something. Um, like like when motorcycling is going well, you know, when you're in your element and you're swooping around the corner, yeah. you you know, cresting over a sand dune in the Sahara. And you, it's like it's a proper, ooh, you know. But when it's not going well, it's like plodding through mud and then it's really hard. So, And you just sort of have to sit there on your own and think this is a good way to spend my time.
0: But with the success of Lois on the Loose, and by the way, anyone who hasn't read this book has to clearly go out and get it. And I think you can get it at Amazon. You can get it probably just about anywhere yeah. now. Um, but with this success of Lois on the Loose, um, doesn't it make it easier to write? Like knowing that, you know, you've already got this background now of, of, yes. of a couple it, of good books out.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's true. It, it's true. I mean, obviously, you know, once you've got one book out, then it's much easier to, to kind of keep going. And, and you know, you, you build up a, a, a kind of a group of people that know what what you're about and are kind of interacting with you and asking you when your next book come out and that's great I mean it's lovely to get those emails from people you know I love to get emails especially from women who say you know I, I read your book and I learned to ride and now I'm making my first solo trip and you know that is really it's so amazing to think because you get caught up in all the detail of it all sometimes and I think you have to d- take yourself out of it uh, on the trip and in the in the writing, and think, wow, this is you know this is like a really nice thing to be doing, to be connecting with people through through words like that, because books have really spoken to me in my life. So to be able to think that I can do that to people as well is great. And I've met like wonderful people through doing this as well, and made really amazing friendships all over the world. So that that's kind of the the the, uh, the upside of it all, you know, the, the, when you're not sitting in front of a computer by yourself. <laughs>
0: how long did it take you to get the book finished and out
1: uh, the first one it took me about a year to write it um, and then it, the process of actually sort of it, it being published and, and sort of being in the shops is probably another year or something so yeah I mean actually no it didn't come out until 2007 and I came back from my trip in 2004 so actually I think there was kind of a year of like hawking it around trying to get it published then a year of writing it and then a year of sort of scheduling it and actually getting it printed and all that stuff Um, which obviously the publishers did all that so yeah I mean it took took quite some time and then the Africa book came out a year after that so that was quite quick in succession and then I I do I I don't really like uh, want to be on the road all the time I'm quite you know I like my home so I have to feel the real urge to get out there so that's why it took me quite a while to go and do another trip and I went to Iran in 2013 for the first time and I hadn't I don't want to just write books for the sake of it. I have to really care about them and, and really want to tell this story. So I, I, don't want to, I don't want that kind of contrived, you know, the difficult second album, kind of the contractual book feeling. So that's why I didn't write another book until I went to Iran because I went to Iran because I was fascinated with it. And once I was there, I just thought, God, this is the most interesting place I've ever been. I have to tell the world about this because nobody really knows what Iran is actually like Um, because hardly anybody goes there and I love it there so much that it compelled me to write another book but that was a big gap between two and three
0: I want to talk about Africa and and your your next book, Red Tape and White Knuckles. But before we do, let me just ask you about that change because in two thousand three you left your job at BBC that you you clearly weren't enamored with, but you came back as a changed person. What was the what was the change? What was the difference between Lois in two thousand three to Lois when she returned in two thousand
1: four? Yeah, that's a good question because people you know travel is meant to form the mind and you're meant to come back a changed person, aren't you? And I I remember coming off the plane. in landing in you know in England, and my mum and my brother were there to meet me, and I remember my brother saying to me, "Ah, oh, slightly disappointed. You're exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> Still the saying, same saying crap jokes and everything." But you see what, what he didn't realise is Cause it takes a while, and I probably felt exactly the same too. But I I wasn't really I suppose. But it's not like oh wow you have this amazing revelation and suddenly you're like this new person. I mean, if you do do that, I think it's probably not really real and it's a bit bogus. But what happens is it's a slow kind of creeping effect of all of those experiences and all of those people and all of those challenges and all of those scary moments and funny moments and, and challenging moments. They all seep in and they just create this uh, slow change in you that, that when something challenging comes along a bit later, and it doesn't have to relate to motorcycling or travel or international travel or anything like that anything could be anything that's challenging you just have a little you just think yeah i'll have a go because you know you you know that you've taken on all these other things and then you, you're more inclined to have a go at something else and then because you're more inclined to have a go you'll succeed and then because you succeeded that then you're more su- likely to have a go at the next thing and so it's just a gradual building of, of sort of quiet confidence i think that happens so it's not like you come back going yeah i'm like this really cool amazing motorcyclist you know and i can do this and that and because you don't really i certainly didn't, didn't feel like that you know when i left i couldn't you know i was a very inexperienced motorcyclist i wasn't a great mechanic i couldn't speak any foreign languages I, you know uh, and I still can't really do any, any of those things, but I'll still have a go.
0: <laughs> Maybe just less app- apprehension about them, though.
1: Yeah, exactly, because it's it's having a go that's a difficult way. It's the leaving that's the hard part. You know, that's the thing. It's not the being on the road. Being on the road is actually quite easy because, you, like you say, all you have to do is get up, ride, eat, sleep. Mm. Get up, ride, eat, sleep. You just repeat that every day. <laughs>
0: it's <laughs> like on the shampoo bottle you just yes. shampoo rinse and repeat <laughs>
1: exactly. but
0: it's the, it's the leaving when you say leaving it's probably not so much the separation of of you and your, your life there it's the not knowing what is to exactly. come
1: exactly yeah, yeah that's a big thing that, that that's a hard thing to get your head around because it's a nat- natural human instinct isn't it to want to sort of know where you're gonna what's gonna happen and and and, and that's a hard habit to break especially for us Brits you know we're very organized types and we all sort of like to be punctual and everything and it's like well right okay so what, what's going to happen now where am I going to be now what's going to right did, yeah so that that's sort of part you know I've got that side of my character and, I, and like I say I have to kind of try and sort of let get rid of that and just and, and just let things happen to me that's the challenge.
0: As you describe, itchy wheels struck you again. And in 2006, um, you did your ride in Africa. And like I alluded to, a much bigger machine. You went on a Mm -hmm. uh, 250 uh, this time, again, a Yamaha. Um, You went to the Sahara, the Congo, and Angola. Four months and 10,000 miles later, you you ended up in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. And then you wrote the book, Red Tape Mm -hmm. and White Knuckles, and that was published in 2008. So by the time you came back from your last trip, you were already planning a new trip, or did this come about some other way?
1: um no i came back and i I wasn't itching to go off again i've been away for 10 months which is a bit longer than i'd expected uh and it was still fun but i was ready to go home by that point Uh, i sort of come to the conclusion that six months is a kind of ideal trip length it's sort of long enough to feel like you've been away and and lived another life but not so long that you're like getting a bit like oh yeah another volcano blah blah you know but you can get a bit like that. (laughs) so you you want to keep the novelty and the excitement Uh, so I was happy to go home I was very excited about you know trying to write a book so that was sort of like the next big major challenge so I'd always wanted to go to Africa because for us Europeans that represents kind of the closest uh, uh, sort of real adventure in the way that that Latin America is for North Americans so and as a motorcyclist the Sahara Desert is the ultimate to me I always thought that was the coolest thing that you could ever do and was. The, the idea of riding across the Sahara, and I'd really fallen in love with deserts after going through Bahar and, and then the Atacama Desert in Chile. It's funny because they're so alien to me as a Brit, but maybe that was the appeal: huge open spaces and and the dryness. So I was really really wanted to do, to go to the Sahara. So. I did a little trip to Morocco with um, my husband Austin and a friend of ours and I got a heat stroke within about a few hours of arriving in the (laughs) desert and and fainted and vomited. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, A terrible business. Uh, And I thought, oh my God, because I'm really pasty. I'm pale and (laughs) white-skinned, weak person. And I thought, what the hell am I thinking about going to ride across the Sahara Desert and all the way down to Cape Town by myself? So I, I shelved that idea immediately and decided I was just too puny and weak uh and then I went home and I got so annoyed with myself for thinking like that like oh Sunday I have to do it now so I went to a sunbed try and get a tan and then I got heat stroke on the sunbed as well and and I thought right no I really really can't go to Africa look at me I'm not I'm not cut out for Africa you know I I, I was born in Scotland Uh, and so I shelved the idea again and then I got even more annoyed and I thought right I'm going, I'm I'm just this is is, you know I'll never rest until I've done this now because I've set myself up so I did set off and I was really nervous, you know, but I just took it one day at a time. I acclimatized um, I obviously I crossed the Sahara Desert in what is our winter time, um, sort of November time. So, um, but yeah, it was really, really challenging, but it was the most exciting motorcycling experience of my life. I rode through um, Algeria and... It's just the best riding I've ever done, ever, ever, ever. And I, I'm not that much of a competent, you know, sand rider or anything. And the first day I was all over the place, and I thought, oh my god, I've got 2,000 miles of this to do, and I'm like lailing around in the sand. And it was really like necessity is the mother of, you know, <laughs> kind of um, growing a pair. And I just had to get on with it. So the next day, I just, something happened, and it just clicked, and suddenly I could do it. And then I was just in my element, and I loved it. So that was brilliant Uh, and then I carried on through Africa and I went over down to the West Coast um, and I travelled down the West Coast route through um, Gabon and the Congos uh, and then Angola and then Namibia and down to Cape Town and it was truly the most exciting experience of my whole life and I don't think I can ever, ever, you know, match it really.
0: What would one expect to find in red tape and white knuckles in the book?
1: Uh, some pretty hairy bits. You know, I get into the Congo and um, I had a pretty uh, scary experience there when I kind of got fog marched onto a train by a load of soldiers with guns who were all drunk and stoned and uh, <laughs> forced me oh. to get on this train and, and j- descended into the jungle for hours on end. and uh, that was pretty hairy. Uh, And then I ended up straying into a minefield in Angola and sort of having to just like go for it with the risk of having my legs blown off and trying to get out of there. And, I, you know, so they're really scary riding moments, but also, you know, some of the most, like I said, the most exciting riding of my life and some really lovely heartwarming experiences with people, especially in Angola where I was just looked after so beautifully by everybody and, uh, I mean, when I got to Cape, Cape Town or Cape of Good Hope, I, I felt like I'd lived another life. I felt like I had nothing would ever be the same again. I really, did feel like that. So, I'm I'm really glad I didn't choose Africa as my first trip because I think as a starting out trip, I I, could, I, I would have been too much for me. It was pretty pretty um, full on. It when you got...
0: When you got off the plane this time, was your brother impressed?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so. I don't think he even bothered meeting me on this. And by this point, he's like, yeah, yeah, she'll be all right, yeah, yeah. They got, you know, they got used to it by then. Like my mom was a bit worried on my first trip, and then when I went off to Africa, which was actually much more you know, worrying. In a sense, she was like, yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> at this point, your life's changed, really. I mean, yeah. you are an adventurer, right? Is this how you make your living now, or like at 2008 when you did this trip?
1: yeah I mean I, I never went back to an office job uh, but I, I did bits of work uh, you know kind of delivering stuff on my motorbike around London while I was writing my first book to try and make some money and uh, and and I sort of built it up from there writing articles obviously the books um have been good to me and and then I, you know do a lot of talks and then those kind of you know the more you do that the the more you get uh, more work you get so I ended up doing so a lot of you know do corporate ones in schools and businesses and clubs and all over the world actually and sort of festivals and you know so so a lot of that kind of thing um and then uh writing freelance for you know i write for various you know magazines and newspapers it's pretty i've done that pretty much solidly since those days but i mean you know obviously i earn much less money than i ever did before but um uh you know i'm happier and more and it's more fun.
0: <laughs> were you driven for money before? When you, you know, when you were at BBC, no, was I, it? More?
1: No, I've never really been that. That's never been a driving force in my life. I mean, all of the jobs I've done, they, the BBC is probably the best paid job I ever had, but it wasn't even that well paid because that industry, as well, you know, the music industry, that's not really a very well paid job. And I was just like a mad, music mad kid that wanted to work with records, and that's no way to get rich. <laughs> but I've never been interested in. You know, that's never been. Uh, a motivation of mine i've it's always been more I've, i have to be interested in my work otherwise i just simply can't do it yeah so, I, I assume um, that
0: i mean most people that are doing this sort of thing are not yeah are not real big on just uh, collecting dollars it's about experience with life oh
1: yeah yeah and i've always lived on a about almost all of my adult life so i've had a kind of cheap lifestyle which has mean is, that has meant that i've been able to do badly paid jobs you know for fun for reasons and and been able to take the gamble of you know going off on a bike trip because you know i didn't have a huge mortgage to pay or anything like that so that's kind of been always sort of been how i've lived really by choice but obviously it means i won't exactly be retiring on a big cushy pension sadly
0: (laughs) so your method is to save your money then do your trip not work or try to raise money on your trip and come back and do the same
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't really, you know, for me, like I said, part of the trip is getting away from the kind of everyday bullshit of, you know, life and and trying to raise money and earn money and working and being on someone else's time. You know, this is the thrill. Part of the thrill is being on your own time, and that's a very rare experience in life. So I think for me, that was really important to to, to keep that going, and that's also why I've never really pursued you know sponsorship or anything like that because I, I don't want to feel that i'm sort of indebted to to anyone or i have to take photos of their logos and and be blogging about them or anything like that i just want to go and not have to be have any commitment to anything
0: and that's a real honest trip too when you're doing it isn't it i mean you're yeah. not doing it for, for other motivations especially no. you know money motivations you're, no. you're not looking for monetary reward you're doing it for the experience
1: Oh absolutely yeah that's what it's, got, it's all got to be about yeah you've got you've got to do it on your own terms absolutely
0: you know, Lois, you just, I made a note while you were talking earlier, because you said something that really sort of s- sparked me. You said about, you found six months was an ideal time, mm-hmm. and then you would head back, and that would be a great adventure for you, or a great segment for adventure. And I got to thinking, you know, I've often thought about humans, how we get, we get very used to it. You can live in a beautiful place, which I'm sure you do, and mm-hmm. but to you it, it becomes mundane, and it just mm-hmm. becomes the norm, and pretty soon you don't even see it. So really, to to truly experience, and I'm talking life as a metaphor here. Really, everyone should consider shaking up your life. You know, every six months or a year, completely, like turn it on end, because that's that's really you know that's sucking the marrow out of the bone of life, really.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. It's it's easy to get into a rut, isn't it, in a routine and 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 even you can I think you can actually get into a rut in a routine on on the road even you know, so. I, it, it, yeah, I think it's good to be put in situations where you don't quite know what's going on and, and you have to think on your feet. And that's, that's the thrill is, is the kind of living on your wits part of it. And that, that was what drove me in the first place, really. So yeah, I do like that aspect.
0: Yeah. And I think that that is exactly it. If you're traveling nonstop, it has to become the norm. The the last week we had uh, Era on and uh, Era Mm. was saying uh, um, that he found that after 10 years on the road, you know, it's sort of, I guess the, you know, the, uh, the excitement has sort of worn away and there's some Mm -hmm. things that uh, maybe he doesn't like that much about being on the road. And I think that's probably the same as everything, isn't it? I mean, we gotta, we gotta shake things up.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, the, the the point of a road trip like this, a, a sort of motorcycle adventure, is is to shake things up, is to be out of your comfort zone, is to be in, in new, uh, novel, and exciting environments with different people, and and so. But if that becomes the norm, then for me, that's sort of it's lost its point. Uh, and also, you know, I am quite a domesticated. <laughs> you know, I'd like gardening and growing vegetables, and you know, I'm, I'm, you know, not averse to my soft furnishings. You know, so I like to go home and kind of have a little cozy home life. But knowing that I can, you know, go off and 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 shake it all up if, if I need to. But it, it, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's like uh, get boredies or something. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I think a bit of both is, is ideal for me anyway. That
0: first trip in two thousand and three, and possibly the second one, were really the springboards that that sent you off into this new direction, and an incredible new life, whether your brother agrees with it or not. <laughs> and, and um since then you've done a bunch of things, like you you mentioned the sidecar trip um, with Austin, your husband. um you've um, you've made a DVD. did you make that for Horizons Unlimited?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was quite a few years ago now, but they did a series of kind of how-to guides on DVD. Um, how to to do a motorcycle adventure, and they wanted to make one that was aimed at women riders, so I I made that one, scripted, and presented that. So that was really fun. Um, Yeah, and then Austin and I set up the Adventure Travel Film Festival as well, which is that's sort of been what I've been doing for the last few years, really.
0: So talk about the Adventure Travel Film Festival. In in North America, we don't have it. I know you have it uh, in the UK Mm. and Australia. What is it all about?
1: Well, we do want to bring it to you guys. So one day we will have it in in North America. <laughs> it's brilliant fun. It's a weekend festival. You know we we're big on festivals in the UK. That's why I've got a croaky voice, by the way. I've just got back from Glastonbury Festival yesterday, so I've been. Uh-huh. Uh, we are we it's the biggest music festival in the world, I think. It's, it's amazing. So we have a lot of that kind of camping for a weekend. You know, sitting around the bonfire, I said so our festival is all about adventure travel, not just motorcycles. It's very much not just motorcycles. It's, you know, it could be a kayaking film, it could be horse riding around the world, it could be driving, it could be, but it's all independently made, independently uh, sourced source adventures, really. Um, and these films are just unbelievable what people are doing and what they're filming. It's just the quality of, of the trips and of the filming is just amazing. And this is a revolution, really, because obviously it's all happened in the, you know, it's been made possible by people getting their hands on really great quality cameras and editing equipment, which, you know, would have been the preserve of of professional filmmakers a few decades ago. So now people are doing these amazing trips and making these amazing films out of them. So because Austin's known to his films, he was always getting sent these films by people. And then we would just had these piles of DVDs coming through the letterbox all the time. We were like, well, what the hell are we going to do with all of them? We'd show them to our friends. And, and we said, oh, we should have a film festival. So it really was like that. And it started in a field, you know, in a barn, sort of projecting onto a, you know, a white wall sort of thing and, and a couple of hundred people camping in this field. And it's just gone from there. And now we hold it in Australia and in the UK. And it's, you know, probably we're going to have, you know, about a thousand people in the UK this year. And it's just, brilliant brilliant fun and lovely atmosphere and really just just a really nice place to be for the weekend yeah
0: it sounds like it'll be amazing when is it happening and where is it happening this year right
1: well it's uh already happened in australia It happens in february in australia and it's happening in the uk uh in london this time in um august the 14th to the 16th of august in north london and we've got a lovely new venue so um uh, it's, yeah all very exciting
0: What's the website for this?
1: It is adventure dot com.
0: No, that's an easy one to, to <laughs> yeah, find exactly, for sure. Yeah. It, that's great, though. I mean, uh, you know that, like you say, with the with the technology that we have out there, people are getting amazing footage, and mm. and it's it's incredible. I mean, you see some of the stuff that comes onto YouTube, yeah, um, just amazing. So that, that's that's really neat. And how how are we going to get it here? What what brings it to well, North America? Well,
1: we would really love to do. It. I mean, we we you're probably familiar with the Overland Expo in Arizona. We used to yeah. do it as a kind of sideshow for that but but we want to now do it as a kind of full-on you know like proper american version kind of everyone camping and, and hanging out and watching films so we've got a friend in the states that is going to come and sort of uh check out the british version this year and hopefully set one up on the west coast somewhere so it's all very early days but um i feel like you know it, it needs to be taken to america cause especially the, on the west coast and the pacific northwest there's some really cool adventure people up there you know and I think they'd really enjoy the film so yeah.
0: Do you find you're juggling more things now than you were back in 2003 when you were the old Lois?
1: (laughs) I am stressed out of my brain with the amount of stuff that I'm trying to juggle it's too much and uh, yeah in fact this is kind of something that me and Austin talk about it's great because obviously it's really good to be doing all these fun exciting things but I've realised that I can't do it at all and I have to sort of uh, select, you know, what I choose to spend my time on, maybe because I'm getting old as well and tired. (laughs) But I I really need to finish my book about my Iran trip. And the film festival has gone from strength to strength, but it's become, you know, like too much work really for us. So we're getting someone to help us with it and, and sort of delegating stuff. So that's, it's been a real learning experience, you know, turning all of this stuff into into you know real work because it's kind of didn't really ever mean to happen like that you know it's funny because I just thought hell I just want to get out of my boring office job and have some fun and then you know (laughs) 10 years later you like (laughs) got all this stuff going on which is brilliant it's really great but um it's been you know quite a learning curve for me really and I've got for me the writing is everything that's my main thing that I love the most so I've sort of want to um, step back a bit from the kind of day-to-day running of the festival and, co- and concentrate on writing more now.
0: But i got to tell you, Lois, it's very inspirational for all of us to watch you doing what you do and juggling ah. all these things. I mean, it really is. <laughs> it, it, I, don't, I, I think it sort of brings your, uh, your expectations of yourself up when you see someone doing this, you know, and you think, well, okay, then I, I can do more, you know, I can do well, something. Well,
1: that's very, you know, I, I mean, that's great if it does have that effect because I certainly feel like that, you know, say when we're showing the films, at the film festival and I'm looking at these amazing people doing things that I would never dare to do in a million years and thinking, my God, you know, this is incredible. And you come away from it thinking, yeah, all right, I'll have a go. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So so I, I'm all about spreading that message that it's, you know, it's all for, it's for normal people, this stuff. You don't have to be a superstar. And I'm definitely not one. And that's the whole point. So, you know, if I can do it, anyone can.
0: You're working on a book right now mm-hmm. and uh, on your your trip to, uh, two solo trips to Iran. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to go to Iran?
1: Well, I had sort of, I had a fascination with it because it's one of these countries that everybody seems to have such a downer on. And we've got a terrible, you know, as, as have uh, America really, we've got a terrible sort of re- reputation there and, and history with Iran, British, you know, Britain and Iran have kind of pretty bad history and so it's created this sort of environment and of course you know there's a lot of sort of anti-muslim thoughts around as well because of all the sort of terror attacks which really that's been a sort of backdrop to my travels because the war you know what they called the war on terror started in 2003 and that was affecting everything and it's gone on and on and on and when i've been in the middle east and muslim countries you know i've seen how that has affected people and how it's affected their approach to me and how it's affected people's approach in the west to to, um that part of the world and it really you know that upsets me because I think it's really really misrepresented in in the western media so I was interested in Iran because of that and because I had a few Iranian friends in London and they were so charming and they spoke so fondly of their home country despite the kind of brutal regime that it's under at the moment I got interested in it because of that and so I thought well I had this before places like you know angola or the congo or or even colombia or el salvador you know people very quick to warn you about going there but then once you do get there you realize oh it's just normal people <laughs> it's like they really are just like regular people who just want exactly the same things as we do they just want to get up and go to work and feed their kids and take them to school and go to the dentist and you know really but that kind of level of mund- mundaneness mm-hmm. uh uh and so I thought, well, I wonder if Iran is really this sort of terrifying place full of like ranting, crazy fundamentalist terrorists, or if it is just actually full of regular people too. And, and really the only way to find out is to go and have a look. And I, I was really nervous, obviously, because I, however much I like to think of myself as a kind of open-minded, you know, liberal-minded world traveller type, you can't help but that sort of drip, 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 sort of anti-Islamic, Uh, thought go you know it's everywhere it's around us all the time we don't even really notice it anymore it's so prevalent in our media so it did affect me and and obviously you know especially as a woman on my own you know British woman traveling on a motorbike you know women aren't allowed to ride motorbikes in Iranian women aren't allowed to ride motorbikes so it's sort of all it all added up to a pretty hairy looking situation but oh I was just proved so wrong I mean i have never known anything like uh, in, in iran the, the the hospitality and the warmth it's like a it's like a tidal wave of of, of warmth and humanity hits you the minute you cross the border it's just incredible i mean i never never known anything like it in my life well when you're
0: planning the the trip to iran are you just planning to just go into the country and ride around or do you have a route set up
1: uh, i plan to I had a rough uh, route and I, um, my friends here in England put me in touch with uh, some friends in Tehran. So I had kind of like one contact there that I would go and, and, and meet up with. So that's a nice feeling to have like there's somebody out there who's sort of expecting you, you know. Mm-hmm. But the Iranians, oh my God, the hospitality is massive. The minute you arrive, everyone's all over you. Come and stay, come and stay. And then they put you in touch with someone. And then my friends in Tehran had put me in touch with their friends. And they were meeting me and bringing me, you know, they were food and, taking me out and putting me up but I mean it was just unbelievable and so sophisticated and charming and and educated people everywhere and just I mean a staggering country in so many ways and so unexpected and and just the best so I went I've been back there twice now and I love it and I can't wait to go back
0: but you don't speak the language.
1: No, I really want to learn to speak Farsi. Actually, that's one of my list of things to do. But um, a lot of people speak English. You know, the education's pretty pretty good over there, and I found a lot of English speakers. Um, yeah, it's brilliant.
0: And why do they greet you with such open arms? Why
1: why do they want to help you? Well, it's a number of things. I think firstly that that is part of Islamic culture is is, is um, hospitality towards strangers. That's just it. it that's just you know how it goes so you see you do get that in other islamic countries too but particularly in iran because they've been so cut off for so long and they're very aware from talking to people they're very aware of how they're viewed in the world and they feel misrepresented and they are misrepresented and they want to sort of make that right so they go overboard i think to try and show that they're not terrorists and they're not scary and they're not crazy and 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 they and they really want to make sure that you go away with a good impression of their country and their people, and they and they do that brilliantly. But it's something just. But also, there's just something in them. They're just very, very open, easy people to be around. Persian people. I mean, it's just absolutely lovely. I, I just came away feeling like, oh, you know, I need to be more like the Iranians. You know. <laughs>
0: It's ironic because, yeah. you, you know, you're saying that they're, they're, they're culturally that's what they do. They accept strangers and they welcome strangers. And, and I can't help but think, well, you know, in, in Canada at least, and I'm sure the States uh, as well, that's not the case. <laughs> you know, really strangers are feared. if You know, exactly. that is, that's what you're you're brought up with. I mean, it may not be laid out to you like that, but that's the general thought.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. We, we, I mean, in England, we you know, we have this kind of strange, especially in London, you know, nobody looks at anyone in the eye and nobody speaks to anyone uh, on the tube, you know, when you're on the train or, you know, you, it would that, be yeah. weird to speak to a stranger in England or in London. You know, you'd be greeted with a bit of wariness. You know, once you've kind of got over that initial wariness, you're probably OK, but but in Iran, it's just natural, you know, it's just very, very natural. Like uh, I was on a train in Iran and people would just be eating and they would open up all their food and they just offer it to you. And uh, that's a perfectly normal thing to do. And I thought, imagine if an Iranian went over to England and sat on a train, would anybody offer them their food? You know, it's, mm. it's, it's a totally different approach to people. It's just very, very interesting. I haven't really quite understood where it comes from or what it is, Um But but it's absolutely lovely, and it really does restore your kind of faith in in, in humanity amazingly.
0: So you'll be going back to Iran, I assume?
1: I'd love to, but unfortunately they've changed the visa rules. There's been sort of spats, you know, between the governments. And at the moment, um, British people can't go without a guide. Well, as I was lucky to get Mm. in just before the rules changed. So it'll probably change again. You know, these, these rules go up and down all the time. They're always, you know, coming up with these different rules for visa regulations but at the moment it's always been the way for American citizens but now it's the same for Canadian and, and Brits so I'm sort of waiting that out and hoping that it'll change soon.
0: Lois for both our, our women and male listeners what tips could you give them for if someone who has not done anything like you have done but would like to?
1: Yeah okay well I would say find your people you know find the people that think this is a good idea because that can make a huge difference because once you're like you must feel like this you talk to people like me you know every, every week or whatever and it, it normalizes it so if you go to a meeting of like horizons unlimited or uh, the overland expo and you're surrounded by people that have done this stuff or are doing this stuff it's normal so you find yourself talking to people uh, and, and getting all this information and they're not thinking you're weird or crazy for wanting to do it so I think that's a really good, and it's very easy to connect with people these days. So, so join you know Facebook groups and and, and whatever it might be, and and but connect in person if you can. Uh, so that's very important, and uh, and really don't let the naysayers um, put you off. You know, because that's a very uh, common problem. Is obviously people care about you. You know, family and friends, but their way of showing that caring is, is worrying, and 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 that's obviously a very a powerful emotion. You don't want to upset people that care about you. So it's quite difficult i think for some people to sort of say right you know okay i'm going to leave my you know f- family behind and do this this thing because you know you're you're putting them under stress so so you sort of have to try not to let that get to you um and with regards to sort of more practical side of things i would say sort of do uh, your preparation and your research but not too much don't 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 not do it you know don't go just wandering off hoping it'll work out because you do need to do a certain amount. But don't over prepare, don't over worry and, and because you will never be ready to go. You will never have everything completely perfect and you will never be completely ready. The only way to get ready to do a trip this is to do it, unfortunately. <laughs> so you'll be ready by the time you've done it. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose those would be be the main the main things, but I, I would say you know I worried a lot and I think you know worrying doesn't really help so try not to worry
0: <laughs> Lois where can someone find out more about you
1: oh well they could look at my website which is com.
0: any parting thoughts before we wrap things up here Lois
1: um well, I just would like to say thanks for having me because I know it's been, you know, taking taken us ages to get here and I've been trying to get on here for a while. So I'm very glad to finally make it. And uh, just hello to anyone who knows me because I know a lot of my friends do listen to your podcast. So um, that's uh, very exciting. Uh, and uh, just please to people, you know, if you do feel this desire to do this, do have a go in it. it It's so rewarding and so exciting. And and the thing that I remember most of all is a a woman told me before I left, I I got put in touch with um, a girl who'd done a trip similar to mine. I think she'd ridden from um, America to South America. And I didn't know her, but someone put me in touch and she was really friendly and helpful. And I remember her saying, it's so much easier than you think. And those words just really stayed with me. And I didn't really know what she meant at the time. But having done it now I can see what she meant and I can tell you that is absolutely the truth. It really it sounds like a really, really big, scary, difficult thing to do, but it isn't. It is so much easier than you think. So just, you know, give it a give it a whirl.
0: That sounds like a book title. (laughs) Okay.
1: (laughs) I'll get on with that one next. (laughs)
0: Well, Lois, um, your books, people can get by checking Amazon or wherever they buy books, and they can certainly go by your website. Lois on the Loose is the, is the first one. Red Tape and White Knuckles is the next one. And of course the other one, I don't know the title of. Um, that'll be to come out soon, I hope. And um, of course they can check out the Adventure Travel Film Festival by going to that website. And we'll have all the links to the uh, these different sites in our show notes so you can just simply drop by the website and check those as well. And I'm sure that people can find out about your banjo playing and your, your all-girl <laughs> bluegrass band as well, the the Jolines, yeah. I believe, is that what it's called?
1: That's it, the Jolines. Yes, yes. And there's a we're on YouTube and it's on my website as well. So yes.
0: <laughs> well, Lois, thank you very much for coming on Adventure Rider Radio. I really enjoyed it.
1: Brilliant. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And of course, I've been speaking with Lois Price from the UK, and you can find out more about Lois by visiting her website, LoisOnTheLoose.com. Check out the show notes. Go to our website, www.adventureriderradio.com and you'll find the show notes to Lois and everything else that we've talked about today. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And MotorTour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motortour, ride, share, connect. That's Tourer, com and Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to go right in your saddle bag. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what we need when we're exploring the world. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio i'm jim martin i hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did putting it together don't forget to drop by our website www.adventureriderradio.com you can see all the episodes we've done you can download them for free you can also find out more information look at photographs we have of people that they've given us to post um, that have been on the show as well as some videos hey wait before you go, don't forget, drop by our website, send us your comments, click on the donation button, send us a donation to keep the gas tank full and the wheels rolling here at Adventure Rider Radio. Drop by Facebook, like our page on Facebook. Drop by Twitter, follow us on Twitter, we're ADV Rider Radio on Twitter. I don't know, am I asking too much here? Maybe I'm pushing too much. Maybe just go to one of those. I'm asking, I'm asking too much. But most importantly, when you drop by one of our advertisers' websites, you make sure you let them know that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. We're very grateful to have these companies supporting the show, and they're making it happen, so make it happen for them too. No excuses now. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe.